The 14-week Out of the Cave coaching program is really about using your relationship with food to heal your relationship with yourself on a deeper level. Here's what some of the alumni have to say. It was life-giving. It was vocabulary-giving. It was thought process-giving. It was so much and a lot. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things that I got out of the whole out of the cave experience was turning, being my own best friend, turning towards myself, um, honoring and listening and speaking (laughs) for myself. I'll have to go like kill myself at the gym. It's just like, let's just move a little bit. Not because I have to, but because it's my body and it's my home and I, it deserves to be loved and taken care of. That's, that's been a big yeah. huge shift for me. <laughs> huge. Just in general, like you were the first person that actually like made me feel seen and like. Hi there. Welcome back to the Out of the Cave podcast with Lisa Schlossberg. I'm your host, Lisa Schlossberg, a licensed social worker, certified health coach, personal trainer, and yoga instructor. If you, like I have, struggle with your relationship with food, eating, and body image, I am here with this podcast to guide you into healing the relationship you have with yourself through a trauma-informed, holistic, and mind-body-soul approach. Together, we can support you in building a lifestyle of more peace, freedom, safety, and power. Okay. Hello, friends. We are back today. Today is going to be a fun one. Today is going to be different than all of the other episodes ever on the Out of the Cave podcast because this is a role reversal situation where I am not the interviewer, I am the interviewee. And I'm sitting here with Elise Shunkowitz, who's been on the pod um, already. And the first episode that we did together was me interviewing Elise. And right before we hit record, I learned about Elise that she used to have a radio show and that she used to do interviews. And we had this idea of sitting down together and doing it this way, where she's the one asking the questions. So that is what we are here to do today. And I'm so excited to be on this side of things for once. Um, so that's that's the context, everybody. That's what we're getting into today. Thank you for being here, as always. Um, Elise, do you want to introduce yourself again? Just give us some context of who you are before we dive in. Of course. Yes. So my name is Elise Shunkowitz. I am a holistic psychotherapist and brain-based personal trainer. I integrate a full mind-body-brain approach to help clients tackle their tackle obstacles, overcome uh, any sort of barriers in life, and crush their goals. Love it. Amazing. Yeah. So yeah, so it's obvious why we connect and really resonate with each other and do very similar work. So we are excited to be here. Um and that's that's that. So like I said to you, Elise, before we started, I'm going to let you take it away. You are the one asking the Amazing. questions. You are, you are the host of the podcast today, and I am here for the ride. Let's do this. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. You too. So I was going to start with more conventional, traditional questions, but I think I kind of just want to dive into the middle, and then maybe we'll go you know, elsewhere from there. I want to know where you learned your philosophies around food and emotions. Like, how did you develop the programs that you're doing today? 
And then from here, I just kind of want to go elsewhere, but I I really want to start here and understand that. Cool. Great question. So I have a lot of answers to that because it's not like, I mean, I know you can relate to this from your own experience. It's like, it's not like, it's like, oh, I read this one book and then it all made sense. It's like, it's been this ongoing evolution and it still is, it's always evolving. Um, But I will say first is my own personal experience. So just the lived experience of, and we could, you know, obviously get more into it, but being really overweight as a child, what that taught me, uh, what that meant in terms of just kind of living in the culture and the social context of that, living in my body and just the lived experience of it, uh, the lived experience of losing weight, the lived experience of being in therapy since I was 14 years old, which is now more than half my life, the lived experience of the trauma that I've been through. And so just, I think a lot of what has informed what I feel like, quote unquote, no, is because I have lived it. It feels like I I know some of the things I know just like in my bones because I have moved through it myself. When it comes specifically to like food and eating, weight loss, weight gain, all of that stuff. But then on top of that, there's also like once I had an idea that I wanted to work with people. Very similarly, this came up in the podcast we did together. Like I started as a personal trainer. So I was, uh, I lost all the weight in college. I was very confused about what I was going to do with my life after that. And so I became a personal trainer and I started learning more about the body and fitness and health and, you know, cardiovascular health and growing and strengthening and all the things physical. And then I also just was experimenting on myself and learning how to do that stuff in my own body. And while I was working with people in the gym, I also started realizing that the things that people were really struggling with were not physical. Like we could, we could do all the physical things, but it wasn't really helping or serving, supporting people the way that I wanted to, which I realized in that work was a lot deeper and so I um, I went through the IIN program, so the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, right, for holistic health coaching. And I learned a lot there about how to really see human beings as holistic creatures. So we're not just physical. It's not all about nutrition and food. Um, it's not all about exercise, but it's really looking at, you know, mental, emotional, spiritual health, relationships, just other parts of life. And then I got my master's in social work at NYU and I started learning a lot more about psychology and development and brain science and trauma and stress management and emotional healing and all of those different things. And, and inter, you know, interspersed with all of that. I also was connected to John Gabriel, who I met at the Omega retreat in, oh my God, I don't even remember. The first time I went to Omega was for John because my story with John Gabriel is I saw him on a Netflix special or like a, it was a documentary on Netflix called Hungry for Change, which was like, like there's like my life before that movie and my life after that movie because I saw it and I saw John Gabriel in it. And I remember him saying diets don't work. And this was at the period of time in my life where, you know, so why do I know? How do I know what I know? After I lost a lot of weight, I was yo-yo dieting for probably about two years. I would like lose the weight, gain the weight, lose it, gain it. I tried all these different diets, meal plans, all the different things. And I remember having heard John Gabriel speak in this documentary. I was doing all this research about 
health. And like, how am I supposed to keep the weight off my body, but still feed myself and not have an eating disorder? Like it just didn't, it didn't make sense. And it didn't feel like the answers were out there. And so part of how I know what I know and integrate into my curriculum, even to this day, are the things that I started just researching. I found things like the ACE study, so the Adverse Childhood Experience Study that I talk about all the time, the National Weight Control Registry that really surveys how people lose and maintain a certain number of pounds. I was doing a lot of research, and I can, again, get back into all of that in more depth, but during that season of my life where I was just trying to connect the dots of what it means to be a human being who has to eat food, that wants to maintain a weight loss but not have an eating disorder, it just felt like there was no clarity on that and no guidance. And so I remember watching this film and John Gabriel was the first person that I remember saying, like, diets don't work. And even if they work for a little bit of time, they're not going to work long term. And at the the time, I remember the first time I heard him, I was like, dude does not know what he's talking about. I just lost 150 pounds. Obviously, diets work. <laughs> and then I spent about a year and a half yo-yo dieting. And I, I just remember hearing John's voice in the back of my head, like the whole time. And I was like, fuck, I think, I think that that guy on that film had something to say. So I went back and I watched it again, like a year and a half later. And that's when I was like, oh, man, everything he's saying is now what I'm experiencing in real time. And I can really get on board with this. So I get John Gabriel's books. I start getting like interested in the Gabriel method. John is someone who's lost 220 pounds with a mind body approach. So I get kind of swept up in the Gabriel method. I never I like to clarify, like I never did it like a program like I never like followed the Gabriel method but it was very informative around the mind-body connection around emotional obesity around using food like a drug around why a bigger body can feel safer like it was just all this information that I was also seeing in the adverse childhood experience study and the brain science of emotional eating and all these things that I was kind of putting together um he knew what he was talking about um, and so I started following him. I went to his retreat. I started then teaching with him. I basically, some people know the story, but it was like the third day of the retreat. First of all, I couldn't even speak to him because I was so starstruck. I like could not believe that John Gabriel was like standing in front of me. And so what I did on the third day of the retreat, I wrote him this letter and I, I handed it to him. And I was like, I basically was like, can you read this? And in the letter, I was basically like, I need to work for you. I don't know in what capacity. I don't know what I don't know how I don't know when I don't know I just I need to be a part of whatever you're doing because you know what you're doing and it was really the first thing that allowed me to see myself as see that keeping my weight off and living a healthy lifestyle was possible and it started making sense and so this is a very long answer to the question but it all it's all relevant because that was where I started learning I have to release dieting. I have to release controlling calories. I have to release control over my body, my weight. I put the scale away. I stopped counting things. I was so committed to kind of what felt like healing the addiction of control around my body. And I started learning things from him around stress management, 
Um, I was, I, this is the re John Gabriel and the Gabriel method is the reason I started meditating. It's the reason I started, uh, he has a lot of visualization as a part of his practice, getting the subconscious on board, feeling safe in our body, yoga, breath work, like all the things that I used to roll my eyes at. I was now at a point where the way that it felt for me was like, I could keep doing the same thing that I've always done, which is keep trying another diet. Or I could kind of just like jump off a cliff is basically what it felt like. And I could just do this thing that this guy is telling me, which is focus on stress reduction, focus on feeling safe, focus on what's going on inside. And I did. And I found experimenting on myself that it was actually true <laughs> that I wasn't eating uncontrollably. I was no longer like binging on the food because I wasn't restricting the food. I wasn't gaining all the weight back. And, and I was absolutely terrified at the time but I experimented on myself enough that I saw that it was it was really real. And so that was a huge um, influence in how I understood the mind-body connection, what that meant for food and eating, specifically obesity and weight loss. And then add on top of that a couple of years of teaching with John at the Omega Institute, uh, I met Nicole Sachs. And Nicole Sachs came along and basically took it all to the next level with mind-body healing around chronic pain symptoms. Um, I have learned an incredible amount about the mind-body system, brain science, the nervous system, somatics, all of it, I would say, from also partnering with Nicole over the last, what is it, 20, uh, five or so years now. So, so... <laughs> All of those things, you know, and I feel like it's not a complete answer without without shouting out all those different parts of it, because you can see how over the last almost decade, it's just been evolving and evolving and getting deeper and kind of, you know, incorporating all these different elements. And now it's at a point where it's really mental, emotional, spiritual, social, physical, environmental health with with an understanding of the nervous system and somatics and safety and the mind body connection. And that's, that's how I got here. Ultimately it was just taking everything that I've learned along the way personally and professionally and uh, through education and experience and combining it into what I do now. So that's, a, <laughs> that's I love it. your first question. I, I love it. You know what? And I was, as soon as I asked it, I was like, was this the right first question? But now I'm like, it totally was the right first question because it has opened up so many doors. I have so many questions. I know you said that to me when I was yeah. I was on. And I even got chills when you were talking about just approaching John. You said his, yeah, John, I need to work for you writing this letter. And you clearly have such a dedication and determination to pursue in-depth amount of knowledge which yeah. is so amazing and I was thinking and I, I told you this morning we were texting I was in the shower thinking of all the questions I want to ask you because that's where all the good stuff comes obviously and I was like wow Lisa is impacting lives in such an incredible way through the work that she does where and you and I have very similar experiences in the sense that a lot of people come to us when they feel like everything they have done has failed and they don't know where else to turn and then they're there doing that work with you and they're seeing long-term sustainable changes and learning things that they can take with them for the rest of their life, which yeah. is so impactful and so powerful. So it's just really, really exciting. And you clearly have such a passion and love for what you do. And the fact that you did all this work on yourself and you've been able to 
cultivate this beautiful program and practice is, is just so amazing. So thank you for the work that you do, because you. I don't know if anyone says that enough, but I'm sure your clients do, but you know, so obviously, like I said, I have a lot of questions, but can you tell the audience, I know a lot of, you have a lot of listeners who are, who are people who have worked with you, but for those of you who haven't worked with you, with you, what is your work? Like, what is your program? What does it mean to work with you? What does it look like? Yeah. So <clears throat> the way that I talk about it now is like, so the primary way to work with me is the group coaching program. And it's a 14 week program. There are 12 modules of content, uh, education, homework, things like that. So that's like the prime, that's what I will kind of focus on. And the program is, it's funny because I was going to almost answer or finish my last answer with this. That is, I've kind of taken all of what I know or like the best of everything that I have just talked about and put it into a 14 week curriculum <laughs> because that's, that's the design of it. Is that like, I understand that it can be really scary and very confusing when you're struggling in this area around food and eating. And I really can relate to anyone who is saying like, it doesn't feel like there's a way out. And that's exactly how I felt. And so that's what I think of this as is, you know, it's, it's really guiding people out of the cave, so to speak. And we can talk about what that means, but what it means is that the way I think about the program itself is the first part, I will split it into like three parts. So the first third of the program is really designed to answer the question, how did we get here? So when I talk about it, it's like, you're a human being, you survive on food. So how did we get here to a place where food and eating feels really complicated, confusing, stressful, emotional? How did we get here? Like, what is going on? Because we can't do anything about it until we understand how we got here. And so the first few modules are about, I mean, the first module is basically just like your mind, body, soul system, your spiritual being having a physical experience with an animal brain in a social context. So if you're not thinking about yourself in a multidimensional complex way like that, and you're still trying to quote unquote, heal your relationship with food, you're necessarily going to be neglecting parts of you that aren't part of that conversation. Like we need to be looking holistically at again, mental, emotional, spiritual, social parts of you as well as physical. So, and then we talk about really unpacking the culture. We have to look at the process of socialization. We talk about privilege and oppression. What does it mean to live in a certain body? Um, intersectionality, that a lot of the things that came from, you know, higher education and social work, being trained as a social worker, looking at macro influences, meso influences. What does that mean for the micro, you know, psychology, um, the socialization process, like I said, um, and and just what what does that mean? What does it mean to be a human being with an animal brain that lives in this kind of culture, um, unlearning diet culture, unlearning anti-diet culture, anything that isn't your own belief system? <laughs> so just kind of peek piecing it apart. Uh, and then, I mean, I'm everyone probably listening to this knows I am such a geek for the brain science. So the follow-up to that is what I always call the macro to micro effect, which is, all right, cool. So we look at the culture, we look at the socialization process, but how does that directly influence your psychology on a day-to-day -day basis? What's going on in your brain? Uh, the, the neurobiology of emotional eating, why are we in this thing with food and eating and body image? Uh, and then moving into, then the second part of the program is how do we get out? 
So where we are right now doesn't feel very good. It's not working for us. So how do we get out? What do we do differently? And this is also, again, shifting mindset, just looking at things from a different place, using the education of the first few modules to really get clear on what is true, what is not true, what have you picked up along the way that's not serving you. Um, and that is true in the, again, mental arena, emotional, spiritual, social, environmental, physical. And that's where the the pie chart of health comes in. So one of the, one of the modules is all about nutrition. Um, and that's really inspired. I forgot to mention this too in the first question. I also worked with a pediatrician who is the specialist in childhood obesity, and we were treating families around disordered eating in children. And that also is a huge um, influence in how I put together my own curriculum. And so that's where I teach about nutrition, but also the psychology of feeding and what that looks like and what it means to raise a healthy family. But I, this is where like for me, my own kind of original flavor of it is kind of combining Ellen Satter's division of responsibility, which is Ellen Satter was a dietitian and psychotherapist. And the division of responsibility is um, really aimed at preventing and treating disordered eating in children. So it's all about the psychology of feeding in a healthy family. But I kind of combine that with the internal family systems and like Dick Schwartz approach to the internal family. And so what does it mean to be your own parent what, around food and eating specifically? What does it mean to have a healthy psychology uh, around food, but internally as well as, you know, with your own actual children. So how do we get out? You know, how do we, how do we establish a healthy relationship with food? But to me, that doesn't mean, you know, being mindless around food. It means actually being mindful. It means being intentional. It means very, being very conscious in what you're choosing to put into your body. But part of that is also the conversation of love and fear. You could do, you could eat a salad from a place of love. You could eat a salad from a place of fear. So talking about, it's not just what you're doing. It's about the energy with which you're doing it. That's also part of kind of how do we get out? And then the last third of the program is really about, you know, quote unquote maintenance and sustainability and the lifestyle change of it all, which is like I always say, and I say this in module one too, it's like you're signing up for a lifestyle change, but it's not a lifestyle change because of the way that you eat and the way that you move. It's a lifestyle change because you're now thinking of yourself as a mind, body, soul system of energy who needs to get their needs met and who can establish, you know, stability and peace and freedom around food. And so part of that, you know, toward the end is we'll talk about body image, how to deal with that on a, because body image, as far as I'm concerned, is like a chronic, um, you know, mental health thing. So it's not about getting rid of it. It's about learning the skills and tools of, of working with it and knowing it's going to come back up again, a uh, healthy relationship with exercise and movement, and then also limiting beliefs. And codependency, people-pleasing, uh, boundary setting, all the things that are going to contribute to, you know, social health, but also all the other, all the other parts of health. So it's really comprehensive in, in that way and integrative in that way. That is, it's really about looking at you're a human being, not a body. And the goal is not a certain weight or shape or size, but it's really for you to feel safe and stable in your own system so that you can choose from a place of power and freedom how you want to behave around food in the long run. Wow, really comprehensive. I did not realize it had all of this intertwined. Like that's yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. And it's, um, it's very, um, that's why, you know, it's, <laughs> that's why it's really out of the cave. It's like, 
there it's really a shift it's really a transformation um if you show up to receive it you know it's it's like i think very it could be very very life changing or at least that's what i've heard many many times yes i i can't even imagine like i i'm sure it's so impactful for people and so a few more specific questions about what you said mm-hmm. you mentioned a learning anti diet culture yeah. and i'm really curious anti diet culture is kind of a newer, you know, I don't know. Well, you could speak more to this, how new it is. And also, so I, I would love for you to speak further about that. And also intuitive eating. What are your thoughts mm. on intuitive eating? Mm. Yeah. So there's so much to say. And it's, it's interesting because, so there's one episode of this podcast that is called intuitive eating where I get like, it, just if anyone's like, Ooh, I want to know the answer to that. Like, if you want the like hour and a half version of my answer to that, there's an episode that is specifically dedicated to that. So first I'll talk about the anti-diet movement and what I mean by unlearning anti-diet culture. A lot of people who come here to work with me, and this isn't everyone obviously, but what I see and hear really frequently is the person will have, let's say, you know, 40 years of diet culture under their belt. So they've been dieting, they've tried all the different things, they live on Weight Watchers, They've counted points. They know the calorie counting of every single thing they put into their body. You know, they're very infiltrated with that kind of mindset. And then for a lot of people like that, the anti-diet movement, intuitive eating movement came along and it was like, finally, right? Like something is coming along to be like, diet culture is bullshit. Like this is amazing. And a lot of people kind of like rode that train, you know, and like hopped on that bandwagon And there's like, I have no judgment about that because like, of course we did. And I think so. So again, what I see is that then people kind of swing the pendulum over to anti-diet land where what that means for people, and I'm not saying that this is the way that it's intended to be, but what that has meant for people in real time is that now they're like, fuck dieting, fuck diet culture. All of these rules were bullshit. They always were. I can eat what I want. I can do what I want. Freedom. And then it means that they are just completely out of control around food and that they're eating everything. They're eating when they're not hungry. They're eating things they don't want to be eating, but fuck diet culture. And if I try to control my, you know, if I try to control it and if I try to do something about it, well, that means that I'm dieting again. And then it's this like pendulum swing that keeps happening. And so the reason that I'm talking about unlearning anti-diet culture as well as diet culture is because a few things. One is it's (laughs) there's like a few different ways I'm having so many thoughts right now but the first is when it comes to anti-diet culture again the experience that I have been a that I've had myself but also the experience that I've heard very much about and has been shared on this podcast before is that people feel a sense of incredible shame and guilt about being a part of this anti-diet thing where now It's like, well, now I feel totally out of control around food, but if I try to do something about it, then it means that I'm on diet and then I feel bad because I'm dieting and then I'm a bad feminist and I'm a bad person and I'm, you know, part of me wants to say fuck the patriarchy, but the other part of me kind of wants to get control of what I'm eating and and it becomes this like total shame spiral of like, well, you shouldn't want to lose weight and you shouldn't want to control what you're eating and you shouldn't this and you shouldn't that. And it's been warped into this like, 
It's just another predator. So on one shoulder, we have the diet industry. And on the other shoulder, we have the anti-diet industry. And both of them end up saying the same thing. That is, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you're bad and you're fucking it up. And so people come to me being like, I feel like there's got to be another way because I don't want to be dieting and controlling everything I put in my body. But I also don't want to live this lifestyle of like total mindlessness around food. And I don't want to be doing this thing where I'm just eating all willy nilly because now I'm the heaviest I've ever been. I'm the least healthy I've ever been. And I thought the anti-diet movement was going to really help me. And now I'm just unhappy and unhealthy in different ways. And so again, I know that that's not the intention of the movement, right? But that's how it's integrated for a lot of people. And that's the lived experience that people have. And so I'm saying, listen, the same way that the diet industry was filling your head with messages, the anti-diet industry is doing the same thing. It's just a different opinion, right? It's a different approach. It's a different voice. But what I'm here to say is that none of it is yours. <laughs> none of it is your own, right? So even though the anti-diet industry in a lot of ways can pull us out of the diet culture and we really need that, I completely agree with a lot of the anti-diet movement. What I'm here saying is don't listen to me. Don't listen to the diet industry. Don't listen to the anti-diet industry. Listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. <laughs> listen to your own body. And if you yeah. don't like the way that you're eating and you don't like the way it feels to be in your body, that's information that's coming from you. You don't need the diet industry to tell you what to not eat. You don't need the anti-diet industry to tell you what to eat. You don't need anyone to tell you what to do. Well, what we need is a space that feels safe to say, I'm listening to my own body and this is what feels good to me and this is what I want to do more of. This is what I want to do less of. And what I'm saying is you don't need to involve anyone else with that. You just need to do you know, what, what intuitively is coming from you and your own wisdom, your own experience, your own everything. And so it's just tough too, because I mean, there's so much I could say here, but like, there's also a part of me that, you know, and these are things that I get really scared to say publicly because there's so much, you know, I feel like the anti-diet police are going to like barge down my door every like time I open my mouth, you know, which is, which is the shared experience, which is like, listen, you could have all the good intention in the world, but if that's the energy of the movement, like it still feels like I'm running from a predator. But I have to say like in, in absolute transparency, there is a part of me that like, I used to be over 300 pounds. And, and if I went to someone and said, I want to lose weight and their response to that was you only want to lose weight because you've internalized the belief that you're not worthy at your size and you must hate yourself and hate your body and you're infiltrated by the diet industry and da 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 da. It's like, I want to lose weight because I can't like, I can't ride a roller coaster. Like I can't fit in an airplane. Like I can't, like, it's not your, like you are projecting your story of your own experience dieting and your own experience living in this culture onto me. But it's a very different thing, you know, when, when you really are living in a bigger body and you just want someone to say it's valid if you want to lose weight and it doesn't mean anything about you and it doesn't make you a bad person or a bad feminist or a bad anything. And it's just, again, it's like, there's so much I could say, but that's a, that's a reason it just doesn't, it doesn't totally work for me. I think there's, there is a possibility for balance and and I and I really truly at the end of the day, you know, I have such 
I have as much imposter syndrome as anybody. But at the end of the day, when I look at my life and I look at what I've been through, I can actually see the way that I'm like, wow, I'm really embodying that balance that I really believe in and that I really strive to help other people achieve. Because again, I, I lost a lot of weight really fast in a really unhealthy way, but I also restored my body by gaining between 30 and 40 pounds from that place. And now I'm living really with a lot of peace and freedom in my relationship with food. I never get on a scale. I have no idea, you know, like the calories and calories out on a daily basis. It's not, I'm not tracking my food. And so this myth that the only way to lose and maintain weight is to be either on a diet forever or living with an eating disorder is just, it's a myth and because it's, it's not, it's not my lived experience. So anyway, that I could, I could go on, but that's what I will say about that. I love it no, because I connect with this so much because as someone who has a history of an eating disorder myself, and I, at one point was even in Overeaters Anonymous and was told you're addicted to flour and sugar. You can never eat flour and sugar for the rest of your life. And I swear, if I saw a kid with an ice cream cone on the street, I wanted to knock it out of his hand. And it was from this place of fear. Yeah. But then moving forward into my holistic functional medicine practices, both studying for, you know, doing the work on myself and then, you know, studying it to work with clients, I started to also cut out a lot of processed food and a lot of wheat and, uh, you know, at times a lot of dairy. And it feels there's this like little birdie in my head saying that's eating disordered, yep. that's eating disordered. Yep. Yeah, you know, and and even like this guilt I feel now around wanting to make certain decisions for my body because I know I feel better. I know my body needs a little bit of a break from some stuff. Of like, at least you're no fun because mm -hmm. you're not going out and eating the ice cream, even though I normally am the person going out and eating the ice cream, and and I go out and eat all this. I mean, the the thing about overcoming these types of mentalities is the freedom. Yeah, what you said freedom oh, man. So choose what you want yeah thank you for sharing that and I will say I just want to add this because I think it's really powerful I had a conversation with someone recently a couple of weeks ago who is an eating disorder therapist and you know very interesting when I have conversations with people who are like really in this field and there's a lot of feelings around the way that it's all evolving and how it feels very polarizing and it's very dogmatic and it's really you know, it's very cutthroat in the world of eating disorder treatment. It's very like you're in or you're out, you're on or you're off. It's like, you you know, it's, it's really kind of clicky ideologically, which is so like, it's so, it just speaks to the whole thing. You know, it's like, anyway, so, but what I thought was really interesting about that conversation is like, this is someone who's doing the work on a daily basis, seeing her clients and stuff. And and what we were talking about is how, you know, she was kind of picking my brain for my thoughts on like mainstream eating disorder treatment. And I said at the at the root of it, I think eating disorder treatment really moves with the energy of moving away. So what I mean by that is like, you know, we can have the energy of moving toward and the energy of moving away. We talk about this like in relationships, right? So when someone anyway, without getting into relationships, but we can turn away. And what that means is like trying to like fix it or solve it or change it or control it or eliminate it. We're not turning toward it. Turning toward it could be like 
looking at it, understanding it, sitting with it, speaking to it, hearing from it, more somatic, more like, you know, getting getting involved in it and, and just engaging with it. That's the word, engaging with it, right? And leveling with it. And so I said, to me, what it feels like is eating disorder treatment has become so turning away, meaning if you have a thought that feels like eating disorder, quote unquote, what we tend to do is we meet that with fear, judgment, criticism, shame. I shouldn't be thinking this. I shouldn't want this, right? This is an eating disorder thought, period, the end. And we're not getting curious about whether or not that's actually true because it's coming from a place of fear. It's like, I shouldn't be thinking this, period, the end. But what I'm suggesting is that if we're not turning away from it, trying to get rid of it, because we can't get rid of it, it's not ever going anywhere, especially because it's food and it's our thoughts. If we turn toward it, then you have the opportunity to say, you know, I want to cut out dairy, let's say, as an example. And if you're turning away because that's the way that you were kind of taught in treatment is, oh, no, 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 you don't have these thoughts. And if you have these thoughts, don't entertain them, right? It's it's turning toward a part of ourself with fear. It's meeting a part of ourself with fear and judgment. That is, uh-uh, you're the eating disorder voice. I can't listen to you, right? But how do you how do you know? And so if you have the thought that is, I'm, I want to cut out dairy, what I'm suggesting is what happens if you turn toward it rather than away from it? What if you look at that thought and you say, huh, interesting. Tell me a little bit more about yourself. And that thought or the part of you that's having that thought gets to tell you, well, you know what? I've just been noticing that like the last couple of times I eat dairy, I'm like really kind of gassy and bloated and uncomfortable. And I'm just kind of wondering like maybe what would happen or how would I feel if I like didn't eat dairy? Mm-hmm. You then with your conscious awareness get to sit there and be like, huh, this doesn't actually feel like an eating disorder. This actually feels like me taking care of myself. This feels like the evolution of self-care and my relationship with food and that sometimes things are going to work for me and sometimes things are not. And so I want to experiment with this dairy thing. Cool. Thank you for sharing. Right? But the other way that that could go is that a part of you is like, I kind of want to cut out dairy. And you're like, hmm, I wonder why. Tell me a little bit more about yourself. And that thought is like, well, you know what? I feel like if we just cut out dairy, then we'll probably cut a couple calories a day and like then maybe a couple hundred calories a day. And then maybe that will lose a, lose a few pounds and then we'll fit into those pants that we wanted to fit into. And then, and then you can look at that with your conscious awareness without any judgment and be like, mm, you know what? This is actually the eating disorder part that's speaking. You know, really, really good to know that. And so I'm actually not going to move forward with this cutting out dairy thing because it turns out this is kind of the eating disorder speaking. But the only way for me to know that is to know that I have the capacity and the power and the freedom to sit with it and engage with it and actually figure that out for myself. And that's not, in my experience, what people who've experienced, you know, mainstream eating disorder treatment have been through. And so what we have is this you know, pandemic, as far as I'm concerned, of people who are terrified of themselves, terrified of their own thoughts, terrified of their own feelings, terrified of their own desires. What if I want this? What if I want to try that? Does this mean that something's wrong with me? Am I back in an eating disorder? And it's like, no, no, or not necessarily, maybe, but the only way that we can figure that out is to actually be with it. And if all we're doing is saying, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, not that thought, It's like, you don't know if that's coming from a place of love or fear. You just don't know. You could do anything from a place of love or fear, including want to lose weight. 
So that's my, you know, that, that's kind of what I think about (laughs) all of it. And I think that's why what I'm doing, you know, with my people and in my program is saying, you are not your thoughts. You are not your feelings. None of this means anything about you. And let's just sit with it and learn how to listen to it. And then you Mm -hmm. can actually take your power back and decide, you know, what you want to actually do for yourself and with yourself. Yes. And you learn how to trust yourself. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the process, right? Like that's the whole process is being able to sit down and be like, huh, what, what is this? And actually learn. And by the way, in my experience, like, it's funny because I remember like one of the first times that this was really clear to me that this is what was happening. It was so, it was years ago, years ago when I was like, just figuring this stuff out. And I remember at the time I was standing at the kitchen counter and I was cutting up an apple. And so I like cut the slices of the apple and then I take the slices of the apple and I cut them into smaller slices. And immediately I have this thought that's like, oh, is this like an eating disorder thing that I'm doing? You know, it's like one of those like tactics, like make your food last longer and like pretend that you're not that hungry. So you have like multiple things to eat. Like it's like, and I had that awareness of that fear of myself and my own behavior being like, is this an eating disorder thing that I'm doing? And then I had this like immediate other voice that was like, this is how you like to eat apples. Like (laughs) you don't like the big chunks. You like the littler chunks like this, you know? And then I just remember being like, oh my God, this is so interesting that now everything I do, I'm questioning and second guessing, is this okay? And I remember specifically, I mean, thank God for my childhood therapist who was like amazing to me at the time. And I just remember her very explicitly saying, like, you know, she was like a very like, even though I was a teenager, she was still very like, take no shit, you know, and she was really good for me in that way. And I just remember her one point being like, Lisa, not everything you do is a disorder, you know, and I was just like, thank you. Thank you. Because I didn't think so either. But again, the more we have this anti-diet movement culture that says, if you do this, it means this. We're infiltrated with the belief that if I'm cutting up my apple into smaller pieces, it must mean that I have an eating disorder and something's wrong with me and I hate my body and I hate myself and la la la. And it's like, or none of it means anything. And this is just Mm -hmm. how you like to eat your apples. And so I say that because this is the process, not just of you're learning how to trust yourself because you listen to the voice and you get clear on what it wants and needs and all those things. You do learn to trust yourself that way. But in my experience of living in this balance is that sometimes it is a disordered thought. Sometimes it is a disordered behavior. And then you engage in it. And then you can actually look at that and be like, oh, wow. You know, at the time, I really thought that was coming from a place of love. And it turns out that was really coming from a place of fear. Mm, That's really good for me to know in this ongoing lifelong journey in my relationship with food. And that's also self-trust is that you're willing to be wrong. You're willing to fuck it up. You're willing to be like, oh man, I really thought I was moving in alignment with my highest self. And it turns out, you know what? I really wasn't. I was kind of clouded in my judgment that day. Okay, cool. So I can learn from that and move forward with that. And that I think is where a lot of the trust comes in is that you're willing to just move with it and flow with it. And that's really where I think a lot of the balance is also um, accessible in having that kind of relationship with it rather than, you know, the perfectionism. Anyway, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. 
oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and it's <laughs> like I said, my, the, the wheels are turning in my head right now with the thousands of questions I want to with it. I'm like, which way to go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Both systems, the anti-diet culture and the diet culture and the eating disorder treatment, the more conventional eating disorder treatment are not about trusting yourself. It's like, you cannot trust what you need. Right. Right. Being told you can't, I can't eat flour and sugar because you can't trust yourself around flour and sugar. Right. 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 But then saying, you know, you can't trust yourself in case you go into an eating disorder state possibly. Right. Right. In the first answer to the original question, you mentioned releasing the addiction to the control around my body. Yeah. What? I know there's no secret, but what is the secret to doing it? Right. Because there's so hard. It's like people, you know, you, you, I know it logically. I know exactly what you were saying. Cause I tell myself that, right. If I'm in a place where I've gained a little bit of weight, I know the answer is actually to go do the somatic work, to do the meditation, to really care for myself, give myself love and compassion rather than beat myself up, yeah. trying to rest- over-exercising. Blah, blah. But it's so hard to do sometimes when you feel so desperate to yeah. lose the weight. Yeah. Yeah. So I can tell you my experience of this. That is... I think about, so at the time, and it's funny when you were talking about, you know, like writing John that letter and everything. And I was going to say at the time, something that really strikes me when I reflect on my own story is how there was something in me, you know, that I now know is like my intuition, my like gut, my, you know, whatever it is that was driving so much of that. Like when I heard John Gabriel and I could, I just so deeply resonated with him. It was like, nothing else mattered. It was like, this is the thing that I need to follow. And, and so I did, and I kept doing that. And then I did the same thing with Nicole Sachs. And I do that with the things that just like light up my soul in a way that other things don't. And the reason I think that's funny is because at the time, if you asked me about my intuition, I'd be like, what? Like, that's not a thing. And if it is, I don't have one. And I used to, I remember saying, the first time that I went to Omega for John, um, I used to say I I didn't have a spiritual bone in my body. I was like, this is so far out. But but all of that to say, it's like this this thing has always just been driving me that I wasn't even really aware of. But but that speaks to the answer to this question. That is, when I was moving through kind of releasing the control. So what happened was, like I said, I was yo-yo dieting for like almost two years. And I would always lose the weight, gain it back plus some, lose the weight, gain it back plus some. I tried all these different diets. I tried everything. And while I'm trying all the things, I'm also doing a lot of research and finding out why all the things I'm trying are not going to work and they're never going to work. And so at the time, I remember, you know, exploring the Gabriel method and all these mind body things. And the way that it felt to me was, you know, so all of that to say, I've thought of myself as a very logical, level-headed, left-brain thinking person. I wasn't, I would not call myself emotional. I would definitely not call myself spiritual. Anything that I couldn't see or track or measure or touch or weigh or empirically find data for did not exist as far as I was concerned. So the reason that I say that though is because at that time, it was like I had run the experiment on myself enough. And I remember thinking to myself and leaning on 
the, the, the logical level-headed person that I was, which is something that I had a lot of pride around. I had a lot of pride around being very logical and level-headed and not emotional. <laughs> and so all of that plays into this answer because at the time it was kind of like, you know, what are you going to do? Like you have two options. You can go down this path, which is try another diet, or you could try this path, which is don't try another diet and do this like stress reduction, mind body thing instead. But I had this, like what felt like a come to Jesus moment in myself. That's like, how many times are you going to try the same thing and expect a different result? And I also found myself again, I was looking at the data of my own experience. Every time I lose weight, I gain it back plus some. I was looking at the experiment of Wow, whether it's low carb or low calorie or a meal plan or a detox or this or that, they're all going to result in the same thing. So I'm trying it all out. But then there was this other just awareness in me that was like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So you're either going to keep doing the same thing. And by the way, at this point, I, I remember I stopped weighing myself when I was just under 200 pounds again. And I was get, I was getting terrified I cannot even express to you how fucking scared I was because you know all of the data suggests 98% of dieters gain their weight back plus some it's just a matter of time before I'm over 300 pounds again and I'm watching it happen I'm watching it happen that every time I lose the weight I'm gaining it back and uncontrollably uncontrollably like I cannot get myself to stop eating and so that's kind of the answer to the question is like how did I arrive at a place where I was like releasing the control? I was coming at it at the time from a very logical place. It didn't feel like it was a leap of faith, even though it totally fucking was. It didn't feel like I was taking, I mean, I knew I was taking a risk, but it just felt like there's this one path that will certainly result in you being over 300 pounds again. And that's you continuing to diet and diet and diet and diet. You're already watching it happen. Or there's this other path where you don't know what's going to happen. And I just remember being like, well, if those are the only two options that I have, fuck it. That's what I'm going to do. And I, I literally, I put the scale away and I just remember like the little, the little shifts of like going to the supermarket and finding foods. And like the first thing that my eyes would do, I would like dart immediately to the calories, right? Because I'm so conditioned to think that way. And then I remember being like, okay, I'm not focusing on the calories anymore. I'm only going to look at the ingredients of the food. And I just started focusing on the quality of my food over the quantity of my food. I started focusing on, you know, stress reduction over size reduction. I started focusing on how I felt in my body rather than what I looked like in my body. And I was there with like all the, everything I could muster I was redirecting my thoughts a hundred thousand million times a day because I remember thinking that if I don't think about this differently and I don't change the way I'm thinking about this, I will be over 300 pounds again. And I really don't fucking want that. And that's what I did. So for me, it was very logical. It was just like, look at the data, look at the evidence, look at your options. How many times are you going to run the same experiment? And it was like, all right. And then, and then slowly but surely, it felt like a miracle was happening because I stopped counting things and I stopped weighing myself and I stopped this and I stopped that and I started really taking care of myself. And I, I don't think I ever went back over 200 pounds. And that was kind of, that was kind of it. And I 
again, got to a point where I got my period back. I was intuitively moving and intuitively eating and doing the things. And, and that's kind of where I stabilized in a lot of ways. And so that's what it was for me. It was very, I was terrified. So I say all of that because it was like, yeah, it was a logical decision, but with that came a lot of fear. And I was, I was super, super scared, but it's like anything else. It's like, you know, you feel the fear and do it anyway. Cause I couldn't, I refuse to perpetuate the cycle of what wasn't working. Yeah. Do you feel like your clients struggle with that when they come to the program? Yeah. They're releasing the control over their body. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, again, it's like, I think we, we really have that message, like really deeply wired into us that the only way it's going to be okay is if you are tracking every, you know, calorie that you're eating um, and then the only other thing that people have experience with is either being like overly restrictive and controlling or completely mindless and just not paying any attention. And so mm-hmm. it's really tricky for, you know, many reasons to to establish that kind of balance and middle ground where you're paying attention and you're being mindful, but you're also not obsessive and controlling and hyper fixated and all the other things. Mm-hmm. Which then really goes into the body image work. Yeah. I'd imagine as well. And I'm thinking as you talk about this, the connection between confidence and, and body image. And I, and I'm thinking about, I'm not sure if the proper term would be self-esteem or confidence. And I I do think there is a big distinction between the two, but you know, a lot of the times we'll find in myself, I find it with clients, you probably find it that right. People feel more confident when they are in the body that they like more, you know, the size of the body that they like more and releasing that addiction to controlling their body has a huge impact on how they feel about themselves because now their body is, they might, they might start to change. They're releasing that control over the calorie restriction potentially that could result in weight gain, right? So there is, and I I think it's very different than self-esteem because I, I say that, and I can't remember, we talked about this on the podcast episode you interviewed me on, but I say confidence is your ability to take the risk. Self-esteem is your, as how well you deal with failing at that risk. So, you know, if you're, if you're tied to your body image so, so much that, that that's how you feel good about yourself, it's not true self-esteem. At least that's how, that's how I feel. I love to hear your thoughts on that. But how do we go about breaking that, that cycle, that pattern of this connection of confidence and body image? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's so, it's tough and it's complicated. And the other thing that I like to share about it is like, I think there's, I'm going to go back a little bit just into my own kind of story because it'll give you some idea about like why I say the things I say and believe what I believe that is like, so really early on, and again, let's go like all the way back. So when my, the big, the big T trauma of my childhood is when my sister died and I was five years old. And what I know about that and remember about that consciously, subconsciously, is that that was kind of the thing that happened where I decided that I was going to not feel things that I didn't want to feel. And I, my front line of psychological defense was denial. It was just, no, just no. I, and this is why I became really logical and level-headed and not emotional. And I just did not think of myself as someone who felt feelings. 
And if there were things that were uncomfortable or unfortunate, I just didn't deal. I just pretended as though they were not there. And so that began really early on with the death of my sister. But the reason that I, I bring that up is because that's how I also understood the relationship that I had with my body growing up was I was twice the size as, you know, everyone else in my classes. And I was 300 pounds when I was in high school. And when people ask, you know, how did I deal with that? The answer is I didn't deal with that. I pretended that it wasn't there. I pretended that it wasn't happening. And thank God that I got through the way that I got through. And I was really, really not bullied. I wasn't made fun of. I was very popular. I had a lot of friends because also there came in the people pleasing tendencies and being the chameleon of every room and understanding that if I wasn't making people laugh and making people feel good, then I would be the target and the victim and be made fun of. And so all of my childhood and teenage years were just doing this dance of how do I not be ridiculed? How do I not be made fun of? And the result of that was that I was really popular and very well liked. I mean, I was I was like 250 pounds in middle school and I was voted to be the captain of my softball team because it was a popularity contest and I had friends and I socially I was thriving. So I say all that because it's like I I was I played softball, I was in the musicals, I was on stage, I was not shy, I was dancing. I was the life of the party and I that's the, in some ways, the persona that I created to survive. So some of that is a survival mechanism and I can see that. But the reason I say that is because my relationship with confidence and self-esteem was like my, even my childhood therapist at the time would talk about, she's like, you're like a skinny girl in a fat suit. It's like, you don't have any idea that your body is your body, you know, with like, and it's, it's incredible the way that you just like live your life as though it's not a thing. And I was like, well, fuck it. Who's going to tell me it's a thing? I don't need to, you know, I'm, I'm not limited. And I just, I lived there because I needed to, because the only alternative to living there was telling the truth where I would be judged. I would be attacked. I would be ridiculed. I would be the butt of the joke. I would be made fun of. And my psyche could not tolerate even considering that and so I just didn't so for me it was like confidence confidence and body image who gives a shit what you look like it was just so my entire relationship with it was defense and denial and and that's the way I was socialized into this world so I can't like I can't say enough about that because I didn't have thankfully and also not the experience that a lot of people have where they're like awkward teenagers, like, oh, my body, I feel so awkward because, you know, if I only looked like her, I would be confident. My inner dialogue around it was so like, yeah, you know, I know that I'm I know that I'm fat. I know that I'm in a bigger body, but like, who gives a shit? I know that I'm also awesome and I know that I'm cool and I know I'm I'm a dope person to be friends with. And like, who cares? And it was so that way. So my relationship with it, again, it's like it was built into me so early on that what I look like is not my worth as a person, that my size doesn't make me more or less valuable. And because I lived in that world alone, I also was able to kind of manifest that world in my life. And people responded to that and people treated me that way. And again, you know, 
kind of played into that. And so it's easier for me, I think, to live in that place. Like sometimes I will tell you to this day when I'm really struggling because I have the, you know, I have moments today, especially now that I'm awake and I'm living in the world and I'm telling the truth about my experience. There are certainly moments where I don't feel great about my body image, where I wish I looked the way that I used to look when I was thinner and all the, all that stuff comes up. And I'm, I shit you not. There are times where I'm like, what would 15 year old Lisa say? And she's like, this is such a silly, stupid, like, are you kidding? You know, really? You're going to objectify yourself by your body. And then I'm like, oh, right, <laughs> right. And so it's like, there's, I think I have a really strong part of me that, and I think this also speaks to something that I think is really important. That is something like denial. We could look at and be like, you know, it wasn't it, it, like, it's not good to be in denial of things, but it's like, it's also kind of a superpower when you need it to be like, I'm not engaging in this conversation, objectify myself by my body, define my worth by my weight. Yeah, no, I'm just going to not do that. I'm just going to opt out of that conversation. And I think there's part of me that lived so long that way that I'm able to just call on that part of me. And that's what I, that's what I think is really important about this really to answer your question is I think it's very important that we have a distinction between who we are as a human and our bodies. And there's something I say, something even, you know, I just taught module one of the program. And one of the questions that comes up in module one is really, you know, I don't, it doesn't matter to me so much if you like what you look like, or if you like the way that your body is. The real question is, can you treat yourself with love, compassion, and respect regardless of that? Can you start to understand that you're a human being? You are separate than your body. And even if you don't like your body, can you like yourself? Even if you don't love what your body looks like, can you treat yourself with love, yourself, the human, and just creating that space where you're, you know, again, getting your needs met and seeing yourself as a human. And it gets easier and easier the more you practice that to just be like, oh, right, this whole objectifying myself because of how I look is is not mine to begin with. And it's certainly not the way that I want to live. It's not this value system that I align myself with. And so I'm not going to not going to create that in my own reality. So that's what I would kind of start with. <laughs> yes. And that is true self-esteem yes. being able to do that work Yes, of even if I don't necessarily like the way I look right now, can I still treat myself with love and compassion and give myself what I need? Yeah, exactly. And that really, that ties into our conversation that we had last time around failure, right? Yes. Because if my body looks a certain way and to, I think that's failing, but I can sit with this. I told, I had, I had a, a patient who she's in college and she gains a little bit of weight and has some history of eating disorder. And she's like, oh my gosh, we're all going to the beach. And I really do not want to wear a bathing suit to the beach in front of everyone. And we talked about, it and I, I said to her, I said, you have to wear what you feel most comfortable in. But also if you go to that beach and wear the bathing suit, not feeling so great, it's actually going to show you that you're totally okay. Yes. Even in the body that you're in right now. And that's how you start to really cultivate a deeper sense of self-esteem and self-love and knowing, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm a size six or a size eight or a size 12, I can still show up as me and love myself and have a great time. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I also think again, cause I just connect everything to brain science. It's like, what you're doing when you choose to say, I'm going to go to the thing and I'm going to wear the thing, like whatever it is, 
what you're really doing is communicating to your brain, not just that you're okay, but what it means is that you're safe is like Mm -hmm. from, you know, from like the nervous system perspective, it's that like you can do this thing because, and this is what I think is really important about body image is because like language is so important. And so what happens for us is like, we'll do that thing where it's like, I want to go to the beach and wear the bathing suit, but I can't. And when you're Mm -hmm. telling yourself, you're telling your, when you're using that language and you're communicating that to your brain, your brain's understanding of that is that you literally cannot. And if you do, you're going to literally die. (laughs) That's all it knows, right? So what we're saying is you may not choose to because you may not be comfortable in it. That's a different conversation for your brain, especially. But what you're saying by doing that is saying it's like there's this limiting belief that if I get to this size, I can't go out in public. And then you're boxing yourself in, in a way that communicates to your brain that you're unsafe, but that when you choose consciously to say, I'm going to go to the beach and I'm going to wear the bathing suit, what you're doing is like busting that belief and you're letting your brain know like, oh, this I can do this thing. This is safe mm-hmm. for me to survive this. And, you know, we talk about you and I exposure therapy and it's basically exposure yeah. therapy to, 100%. you know, to, to freedom. Ultimately it's exposure yes. therapy to freedom. That is like, I can go to the beach. I can wear this thing. And again, you may decide that you choose not to, but that's, Mm -hmm. that's a different thing. That's you're coming from a place of choice, which indicates to your brain that you're in a place of safety rather than being coerced into something because you have no power, which indicates your brain that you're in danger, which is just a very important distinction. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And I actually told that to her. I said, this is exposure therapy. What do you do? I said, just work on calming your nervous system. When you yep. start to freak out, go into the body, do the somatic work we do together, do the breath work we do together, all the, all the neuro work, the vagus nerve stem, whatever we do. Yeah. And, and she texted me from the beach and she said, I'm not even really thinking about it. I'm having yeah. a great time. I said, this is a huge win. Yeah. This is, yeah. this is the neuroplastic change. We're creating yes. that neuroplastic change, which I love. Yeah. And, you know, along those same lines, but a little bit of a tangent is I find that a lot of the times, once again, both with myself and with clients, is that those judgments we're making about ourselves, when I really boil down to the or origin of it, is actually about our concerns about how other people are viewing us and our bodies. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an important distinction that actually, so this is like a half-baked thought. Like, I don't. I'm just going to throw it out there because I think it's important. So I think it's both. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. I think sometimes I'll speak for myself. I think sometimes the concern really is how other people will view us, which is really valid because if we look at the brain science, right, it's like Brene Brown talks about this all the time too. It's like, you can't not care what other people think of you. You are biologically wired, hardwired, in the circuitry of your brain to care what other people think because you need to be accepted by the tribe, right? And not left alone to die. So it's important that you feel accepted, taken care of, validated, part of the community. That's that's your brain science. So I think it's important to also just when we're talking about, you know, caring what other people think, it's like you're designed to care what other people think. You you have to care what other people think and there's no way out of that. So understanding that that's, you know, an evolutionarily like built-in system. Now, I think a lot of the time when it comes to body image, uh, our weight, our bodies, whatever, it is a concern about how other people view us. Um, And 
that's the first part. The second part is, I think there's also, at least what I've, I think I've experienced. And again, I could look more into this in my own stuff, but I think there's also a concern that comes up that has nothing to do with what other people are thinking and not even to do with the way that I'm judging myself. But again, this I think goes back to my own lived experience. That is, there's something that feels really scary about, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to fit in the movie theater seat when I go to the movie theater. And that has nothing to do with anyone else. That's about me and my lived experience. There's a There's an anxiety of, I don't know if I'll be able to fit on the airplane. There's an anxiety of, you know, I, I, one of the most heartbreaking traumatic experiences I ever had in my life was waiting four hours online to ride a roller coaster that didn't fit. And I had to get, you know, kicked off the roller coaster. And so there's, there's this like trauma that like lives in my body around just existing in the world. And I think that's a really important point to make because that's a very, that's, there's a distinction between that and being concerned with other people's judgments of me. That has nothing to do with other people judging me. And I think that's another thing that I feel really passionate about that comes up with like this whole anti-diet movement thing where people will say, you know, if you want to lose weight, it's because you hate fat people. And it's because you have internalized fat phobia. And it's like, I want to lose weight because I've been there. And this has nothing to do with how other people are judging me or even how I'm judging myself. This has to do with my lived experience, you know, li living here in this world. And I just think there it's both, you know, it could be, it could be both of those things or either one of those things. But I think there's just an important distinction, you know, between, between those. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. No. And it's yeah, 100%. And then I keep thinking about have we created a world though where people who are a certain size are just restricted from doing things yes we you have. know and, and so it's like about the people what are people thinking about me but then in that is also this construct of of a larger issue of yeah. you have to be a certain size to be able to engage in in many activities right in life and that's where it becomes a conversation really about privilege and oppression and, you know, thin privilege and all those things. Like I, I, and I, I gave a couple speeches about this at NYU actually. And I was talking about how, you know, I remember thinking or just being so enlightened by the idea, like before we did any like diversity, racism, oppression, privilege stuff early on in the conversation learning about, you know, my own white privilege and how it was like, you know, someone said, you know, you could go to CVS and you could find a box of band-aids that are your skin color. That's white privilege. Yeah. And I remember like at the time being like, oh my God, like, wow, just being really enlightened by that. And the same mm -hmm. thing happened when I would talk to people and be like, you know how you could just like put a hair tie on your wrist and not get your circulation cut off? Like that's thin privilege. Ooh, yeah. Right? So there's like a million different ways that this shows up that you really don't know unless you've been through it. And your whole life are these like, you know, kind of microaggression moments that you're collecting over time that you don't even necessarily know consciously while it's happening. But that's kind of what I, I remember saying this at NYU. It was like, 
it's not every day that you go from like man to woman. It's not every day that you go from black to white. But I went from morbidly obese to thin in about a year. And it changed everything about the world that I was living in and not just the way that other people were treating me, not just the way other people were talking to me, not just the way that I was being judged or not by other people. Of course, there is a huge social component to it. And that's important. And how that influences our own psychology and our own depression and anxiety and all of those things are important. But at the end of the day, there's also something to be said for the systemic, you know, oppression of just living in a world where, you know, at a certain body size, you need to get two airplane seats. At a certain body size, you can't ride a roller coaster. At a certain body size, there's just things that are not accessible to you. And that's why I think it's really important that we are, you know, moving, moving the needle in terms of what is accessible, what is, what is here for people in larger bodies. But I, again, my personal belief is that culturally it's become very polarized to, we need to burn down the culture and the culture is the problem, but not giving any attention to the person who's in a larger body, who's saying, I also want to lose weight so I can fit into things at the same time. And I just think you can be doing both at the same time. And it doesn't mean anything, you know, it doesn't mean that if you're intentionally losing weight that you don't want to, you know, improve our culture and make it more inclusive. And it doesn't mean that if you're working on changing the culture that you can't also want to lose weight at the same time, because, you know, at the end of the day, like, again, my belief is you're only going to be here for so long. And I think if, if we're doing that thing, that's like, we're waiting for the culture to change that's really powerful and important, but also I think you have a lot of power in, you know, your own lived experience. And, and that's what I will say about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you are, thank you for what you do because you are working on changing the culture, you know, thank like, you. I, like you, you're doing something that I don't think exists anywhere else. I and I love it. I love it because it's all the, all the things that I've thought about and, and dealt with and, and tried to make sense of, I didn't have anybody to go to. I didn't have anyone else, any resources or any references of people who are actually doing this work and helping to make change. And I'm, I'm so excited that I've learned so much more about you and, and your story and your process and something I don't want to gloss over, but I, I know we probably don't have a lot of time to go into it is I didn't know that your sister died when you were five years old. Mm -hmm. I know you have another sister, but I didn't yeah. know that you have, you have a sister from when you were a, a child. So yeah. thank you for sharing that with us because that's, that's never easy. I mean, that's really yeah. hard. Thank you for that. No, it's, I mean, it's come up a few times, probably definitely on this podcast, but it was something that I think, you know, again, when I, when I look at how do I know what I know, how did I get to where I am? Like, Finding the adverse childhood experience study blew my mind because I it was at that time where I was gaining and losing and gaining and losing. And I was just like, what is going on here? I thought, you know, I had just had so much control and power in my relationship with food. And then I, I felt like I lost it all. And I, I knew there was something deeper going on. And my experience of it was I found the adverse childhood experience study somehow. I don't even know what led me there. And I was reading all about how what that meant for us was that all these issues with, you know, health and 
wellness and addiction and stroke, heart attack, the nine out of 10 leading causes of death could be looked at from this adverse childhood experience study perspective of the mind body connection and, you know, uh, toxic stress levels in the body and all those things. And I just remember the way that the CDC website used to be set up was while I was looking at it, it was talking all about addiction and how, you know, starting to integrate this knowledge from the A study into addiction treatment and stuff. And at the bottom of the page, it was like, for more information, click here. And then I clicked there and it opened up this whole page that included all these studies about emotional eating, obesity, eating disorders. And I just was, that was like the moment that I was like, this, this is what I'm dealing with. Like, this is what it is. And it just, again, it was like this knowing in my body that it started, you know, it just got me asking myself back to the first conversation that we had, not what's wrong with me. Why can't mm -hmm. I stop eating? Why was I overweight? What's going on here? It was like, what happened to me? And I just started yeah. thinking about like, well, what did happen to me? You know? And I was someone that was like, I've never been through trauma. I've never had X, Y, and Z. Da, 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 da. And then I just started thinking like, well, when, when did all this start for me? And I was like, oh, well, when Rebecca died, that changed everything. And that was the biggest, again, trauma that, ex that happened, but that was start. That was why I know today it's always really important to me to share that part of it because that's when food and eating became my lifeline. And that is when food and eating became the thing that helped me not feel things, stuff it all down and just pretend that I was fine. And I, you know, the way that I share it today is like, you know, when you're five years old, you don't have access to drugs and alcohol and gambling and cigarettes, but you have access to food and it can work the same way to regulate stress and emotion. And that was really the beginning of me understanding myself and a lot of the people that I work with. And again, if, if anyone wants to hear more about it, one of the first few episodes of this podcast is about the adverse childhood experience study, how it all began with uh, medical, medically supervised weight loss and obesity. That was the genesis of the entire study. And that also just felt incredibly validating for me to find out. And it just, again, it's it's the backbone of, of really how I got to understand myself and human beings the way that I do now. Anyway, I could say a lot about that, but that's, that's it's an important part of the story. Uh, the more and more, I tell it and the more that I learn about myself and continue to heal myself, uh, so much comes back to that that five-year-old who leaned on food like it was it was survival because it was at the time. Mm -hmm. And that's what I hope to really support people in understanding about themselves is that there's nothing again, back to our first conversation, there's nothing wrong with right. you. There's there's that something right with you. you. Right. And that's that's also why it really landed with me when you said in our interview, all the unprocessed, unexpressed emotion comes out in the children mm -hmm. because that was that was the big thing that happened where. You know, everyone kind of shut down. Absolutely. And yeah, that was the beginning of my relationship with food taking that turn. So, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Wow. We're honoring that. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. for sharing your incredible story and how you got to where you are today in your career and practice and the work that you're doing. It's so clear that it is such an incredible passion and love and that you are doing this 
from a place of of just wanting to share with the world a way for people to be at peace with themselves and to have that freedom. Yeah. It really excites me because you're clearly so excited about it. Like when you speak about it, that energy and that, you know, like it's just really contagious. Thank you. So thank you I for sharing that. all that. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, I feel like we could go on and on for like 10 hours straight. <laughs> I was going to say, I would really like, I would love for this to be a series where you can just come back and keep asking me with questions because I would love it. It's like my dream. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Actually, it would be my dream too. I okay. was like, can I make a career of just going onto people's podcasts and podcasts and yes. asking them themselves? I think it would be so fun. So it's so, it's such a good idea because again, it's like, I love interviewing people and I'm fascinated by the people that I talk to, but it's also really like, I love answering questions and I love just being on this side of it. So we'll definitely, we'll make this a thing. We're, we're going to call this part one of, of the shunk of the shunky, the shunky series. That's what we're going to call it. I love it. I love it. 100%. That'd be awesome. And you have so much to share with people. Like I learned so much from this Thank and you. I know that everyone listening is going to, they're listening at the end right now. I'm sure their minds are blown learning about your story, especially if they've worked with you, they probably know bits and pieces, but yeah. maybe not the whole thing. So thank you. And thank, like I said before, thank you for the work that you're doing because it, it just, it's so, it, it reinforces, you know, as someone who's also doing something very different, who has also had their own struggles in the conventional system and has this crazy thirst for knowledge, just like you, which I see, you know, it takes one to know one, right? Yeah. Like it's so, you feel like you really connect with somebody when they're also doing something very similar and trying to make change in the world that is like everything is fighting against us. Sometimes like yeah. you said, I'm afraid to say some of this stuff because I'm worried that the diet police and the anti-diet police are going to knock on my door. I'm afraid to say some of the stuff I say because I'm afraid big pharma is going to knock right, on right. my door. Like, right. like that, you know? Like, <laughs> so you never know, right? Because there's always going to be, there's always going to be someone who hates what you says and someone who right. loves what you say. Right. And right, we're trying to find that balance, but also be true to ourselves and to what we've learned along the way. So thank you for being so authentic and so genuine and sharing the story with us. And and I know so much more to come. I'm really excited about that. Yay. Is there anything else before we wrap up that came to mind that we didn't cover? I know it's like a really vague, open-ended question. Anything you want to share with your listeners? Um, Not specifically. I mean, I am just so like, I just feel really grateful that this is like what I get to do with my life and with my time. And I feel very, like you said, like, I just feel very on purpose with all of this work. And it's so, there's nothing that I would rather be doing. Like I could win the lottery and I would still show up and do all the things that I'm doing right now, you know? So it's like, I just feel really grateful that this is what I get to do and that there are people who are listening to this and resonating with this. And it's like, it just blows my mind that this is, what I, what I get to do. So thank you for, thank you for being here and asking these questions. Thank you listener for being here and listening to this. And as always, you know, if there's anything you want to share or ask or whatever, always, always feel free to email me, um, Lisa at lisaschlossberg.com. I'm, I'm here. And I just really, again, I'm very grateful and psyched that we we get to do this stuff together and that you'll be back this is so fun yes absolutely absolutely thank you so much again for having me yay